by the name of Don Vinzana. Don has passed on now, but Don was this larger-than-life type guy. Big old preacher, Cheshire cat type grin. He wore these glasses that we would always say, you know, we'd always say, looks like Don hadn't been to the hadn't been to the eye doctor since about 1982. He had these big old glasses that come back in style now. He'd be rocking it now. But when Don, who had this sweet spirit about him, was having trouble with a church member, he'd always, or church members, I guess, he'd always take those glasses off and get that big old grin on his face. And you've probably heard this saying before, and he would say, Oh, to be with the saints above. That will be glory. But to be with the saints below, now that's a different story. It was a way of expressing, because he was one of the kindest men, it was his way of expressing that what we all know and what we won't candy coat today or sugar coat today, church is hard. And church can sometimes be ugly. Or there's just little petty things that we sometimes let fester that become scars and wounds in the body. Or whether it's the things that we all know about, like moral collapse, scandal and hurt in the church at large. In the church, in small places, the things that really hurt, like unreconciled relationships, leadership failures, the things that are unseen, like idolatry, sometimes even displayed and overt, but often just unsaid. Those are just a few of the ways, big and small, in which the church can be ugly in a poor representation of the one who saved it and calls it his bride or savior. But we're not going to focus on the ugly today because that is not the point of the passage that Jeff just read. What we're going to focus on is that the church can be spectacularly beautiful. Amen? It can. For example, there's this story of a guy named Clarence Jordan, I want to tell you. And it's his church family who was called Koinonia Farm or Koinonia Fellowship. There was a beautiful example of the bride of Christ. Clarence Jordan grew up a long time ago. Over a hundred years ago, ago in rural Georgia in the 1920s. In the place he grew up in, as a young man, his home was uniquely situated between the county jail and the families that were generationally now trying to make it by sharecropping in the rural American South. So he was uniquely positioned as a young man to see injustice and the way that the world worked. And even at a young age, as he watched people in the jail, especially people with darker skin, be treated differently, and then also witnessed how sharecropping was set up to keep poor people poor, he determined as a nine-year-old boy that his life would go on a journey of trying to change something. So in 1929, he enrolled at Georgia University, and he was majoring in agriculture. He wanted to be a farmer, but he also had this great love for Scripture. And by the time he was a senior, he had grown in Scripture and grown so much in his interest in the love of Christ that he wanted to continue that. 
The other thing he grew in and started to learn about himself and the world was that he no longer saw economic hardship just as something that belonged to the world. He started to see it correctly because of scripture, that it was also a social and spiritual hardship as well, that it was a lack of the display of the kingdom of God. And so, in his studies, he continued to go, and he became a Bible scholar. He was this unique Bible scholar who also knew how to farm. A Bible scholar with an agriculture background. So in his years after he began all this study, he started a church community in 1942 that he named Koinonia Farm. Koinonia, of course, being the Greek word for fellowship. It was a 400-acre farm that was dedicated to trying to live out the passage we were in last week, Acts chapter 2. This idea of sharing everything in common. It was a place that was dedicated to tearing down the racial divides of the South and helping feed the hungry. And this little church community worked to have everything in common as they followed Jesus. They farmed together. They rejoiced together. And they faced hardships together. Some of those hardships were very difficult. In the 60s, in the civil rights movement, the Klan was against Koinonia Farm because the farm housed civil rights movement people. They fired shots at the farm and across the farm several times. They were accused of wrongdoing by neighbors and even friends. And at times, in fact, most times, they struggled with funding, of keeping the little church going. But somehow God always got them through. Koinonia Farm is still going today much because of what happened not long after the civil rights movement. It was a time of financial hardship and Clarence Jordan was speaking somewhere where a man named Millard Fuller met him. Millard was this unique, bright young man. He was 29 years old and he was already a self-made millionaire in the 60s. And the vision of a church and a farm that could bless so many others captured Millard Fuller's mind so much that he and his family sold their entire business at age 29 and everything they had and gave it all in partnership with this little church. Clarence and Millard started to work together with a vision to expand the kingdom, expand the idea of this little church that was feeding the hungry. And they came up with a technique in which they just said, let's start, let's start driving a vision for building houses for some people. So in rural Georgia, they came up with this idea of partner housing. Partner housing was the idea that they could help people that needed a home and work alongside them with volunteers and then give an interest-free loan to the homeowners that they could pay for over the next 20 years. This idea grew and expanded out of this little bitty Koinonia farm. It grew so much that not only did Koinonia farm and the fund that came from it called the Fund for Humanity start building homes in rural Georgia, but they started building homes in all 50 U.S. states and then worldwide. In fact, Clarence Jordan's vision for the church as of 2019 has built and ministered to 30 million people worldwide. The Fund for Humanity and the Koinonia Farm, you all know, 
You just don't know it by its original name. It's called Habitat for Humanity. Unbelievable. The church can be so beautiful. When it determines to be the bride of Christ, and when it determines to be a people who, just like we sang, we are the hope on earth, it can strike out and do world-changing things. And this morning, may we recapture the beauty of this vision from 1 Corinthians 12. As we explore this, we're going to get deep into this passage. I want to ask God's blessing. Let's grab a hand and let's pray. God, we, we struggle with being the body you've called us to be, Jesus. We confess that now. We confess that often instead of building each other up, we tear each other down. We confess that often instead of being devoted to one another, we make excuses. We confess instead of seeing ourselves in light in the full and only allegiant identity that we need in the body of Christ that we often put other allegiances in front of in front of it. So come and heal us, God. Come and show us a better way today through your word. May I get out of your way. May whatever I say this morning, God, be through you and by you and for you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we had a little quiz last week, so as we jump into the text, go to 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to keep that idea of, of the koinonia farm in your mind, of a body that can do great things and be together. But our quiz this morning is this, and it's an easy one. No trick question here other than you maybe let, let it become one, but it's this. When thinking about the church, what is the most important thing any church should have? A decent preacher. Well, sorry. <laughs> no, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right? Unless you're talking to a Sunday school group of second graders. If it looks like a duck and acts like a duck and quacks like a duck, the answer is still Jesus, right? The answer is what is the most important thing a church should have? And if you didn't think of this, no shame, it's Jesus. The centerpiece of our faith the head of the body, the author and perfecter, the cornerstone of the church, the one thing that matters, the center of the reason why we're here this morning, the only reason why we exist is Jesus Christ. It's not about a sign outside. It's not about a gathering time. It's not about any of those things. It is about the Savior and the Lord of the church. And that is the heart of what Paul is getting Two, the church only exists in as much as it, as it exists in him. So as we go to 1 Corinthians 12 this morning, the Apostle Paul is speaking to a group of people who have replaced the centerpiece of the church with their own ideas about, well, I'm more gifted than you, so I'm at the center. Or I really like this kind of teaching, so that's at the center. Or look at this kind of doctrine. This is what matters. And when Paul finally gets to chapter 12, he's trying to remind them, through all these ways that they have lost their way, he's given them a path back 
to what church really is. What is a church? What is the one most important thing in a church? Jesus. If you don't get a little Jesus on you every time you're with other Christians, guess what? It wasn't church. Because the centerpiece where all our hands go, where all our minds are heading, is towards Jesus. And so with that in mind, let's hear this as we work on being the body, being the church today. Let's hear 1 Corinthians 12 out of the NIV this time. Paul says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And we were given this one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed these parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God, and he closes with this thought, but God has put the body together giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. What a beautiful piece of literature. A beautiful little piece of this chapter in which Paul is saying the church is made up of many people in many parts, but together what it is, is the hope on earth. It is the body, the representation, the embodiment of Jesus Christ. Now Paul is using this body metaphor, and you may, may, may or may not know this, but Paul is not the first to use a body metaphor in ancient Roman culture. Other Roman authors have used this. Particularly, they have talked about how in civics or in sociological settings or in social structures, the world is made up like a body all leading towards a government. Most famous, a Greek and Roman philosopher, a Stoic philosopher, had imagined a world in which the Roman Empire was a body and all the little parts and vassal kings were moving towards the head, which is Caesar. So Paul here is doing something kind of cool. He's taking something that is common, a body metaphor, and he's turning the tables on his Roman audience. And he's going, you've heard 
about a body metaphor that leads to greater empire. Let me show you a body metaphor that leads to greater service. Let me flip the tables and subvert this. Let me show you a much richer metaphor. Not something that's built like Rome by empire and Pax Romana and the sword, which is peace by the sword, or where the wealthy and the nobility get what they want because they are the more honored parts of the body. But let me show you a body where we flip everything upside down, and it's called the church, the kingdom of God. And the central point to everything, if you want to underline or star Anywhere in this chapter, you need to star verses 18 and 19. Because what he's getting to there, and you need to keep this in mind as we go today, what he's getting to is that God has done this. God's put it all together. Just as he wanted, so that God can be glorified. So what does God want for the body? What is this? How would we take this lengthy passage and then go, what do, we, what do we do with this? How do we learn to be a more beautiful church from 1 Corinthians 12? You guys want to know, right? I mean, I read this and I go, okay, give me some insight. I want that. And I hope you want that too. So let's buckle in. We're going to do three quick things this morning. Let's keep our Bibles open. Let's get excited. High five somebody next to you. All right, let's get excited. All right, there we go. We got some high fives. And let's jump into this. Here's what he's saying. There we go. We got the high five. I even saw some non-teens high five, and that's good. All right. Here's the thing he's getting at. This is so good. Is he is saying, let's subvert the ways of the world. And guys, we need to subvert the ways of the world too. All right? So the body of Christ is a subversive tool first and foremost because the body of Christ is an outpost of unity in a world of division. Do you feel that in your bones today? Do you feel the weight of division in our culture today? Paul has given us this great news that the beauty of the church is that it is an outpost of unity in this world of division. If you know 1 Corinthians, if you've read it, or spent any time, you know Paul's major issue with Corinth is that as they gathered, their actions and their practices reflected more of the Roman world than it did the kingdom of Jesus. They were showing up. And for us, it would have looked like this. The biggest donors get to sit up front and they get communion and we're not going to put out enough communion. And by the time we get to the back to the people that showed up late, sorry, you don't get to commune with us. Sorry, Brian. Right? Sorry, <laughs> you don't get it. That's what they were doing. They were, uh, they were putting things in order of hierarchy. They were coming together and they were also saying, my gift is more important than yours, so I get to speak and you don't. They were doing all this stuff. Poor people were not waited upon. The Lord's Supper was set up in an un-Christ-like way. Immorality was even being honored as something to hold up, people were fighting over which one and which teacher was the best. And Paul comes along and says this. The body of Christ has a mission, of course, to go out into the world, but its mission is also one of unity. He's, in a lot of ways, reiterating, and you can look this up later, what Jesus says in John seventeen twenty three, when he's praying for us and he says, 
the world will know who I am by the unity of Christians. Let that sit on you for a second. Jesus prays in John 17, 23, that the world will know who Christ is based on our unity. I don't know if you feel some weight of responsibility there, but I do. That lays on me heavy. And sadly, we often live into the world of division just like they were doing in Corinth, often without even knowing that we're doing it, right? I want you to think about this, and I'm going to use one from history so that I'm not picking on us too hard and I'll, I'll step on too many toes here. But for example, I want you to think about churches in Texas, because we're Texans, Oklahoma, through the South, during the pre-civil rights America, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even to today. Think about the actions of Christians during those times. And some of you, you were alive then and you can remember this. Some of you have studied history and you know this. I wasn't alive then. I was born in 77. It's the year Star Wars came out. All right? It's a good day. Good year. All right? But we remember this. And kids, teens, if you don't remember this, this is what it was like. The church, as we watched the world say, you know what? Segregation is wrong. Jim Crow laws are wrong. What the church did is stood by in the South and upheld divisive standards in their gathering instead of embracing and working towards unity ahead of culture. There's a lot of examples I could use there. There's examples from the Churches of Christ itself. There's examples from our old Bible lectures that are, that are dark and, and awful. But I only bring this up for an example because it is a vivid division that shows how often we get into systems of division without even knowing it. Martin Luther King Jr. said years ago, something that still holds true today. He said, 11 a.m. on Sunday is the most segregated hour in America every week. And it's still true. Now use that as an example, but I use it because it's sad that just like the Corinthian church, I'm not sure they were deliberately rejecting God's command for unity. I think them, just like us, we don't often slow down individually and ask ourselves, have I become more accommodating of the culture than I have towards growing in Christ? Because division is our default position. If you don't do what I want, if you don't like what I say, what's our default position? I don't like them. Wish they weren't here. But let's look at this passage again. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this. Paul's unity, what's the, the principle here? Is this, for we were all baptized by one spirit So to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given this one spirit to drink. So what he's saying is, if we're an outpost of unity, then we must step back from the cultural habits we have and then into the body 
a body in which we entered upon our baptism, and in that baptism, we made vows. You may have gone, I didn't make any vows in my baptism. Read Romans 6, you did, (laughs) whether you know it or not. Baptism is not just your ticket to heaven. Baptism is your rejection of anything else that doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. You see that? It is a vows. It is a time of us to say in our baptism, I am now part of a new humanity, a new community where the categories of rich, poor, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, black, white, Latino, young, old, native, immigrant, liberal, or conservative are no longer upheld. They are undone. They are undone in the church. So let's bring this kind of around and ask a tough question. A question that you need to dwell on, I need to dwell on, all of us. And that is this, what are we bringing? What am I bringing into the body of Christ that doesn't belong? What am I bringing into the body of Christ that simply does not belong? So how do I know? That's a good question, Jake. How do I know, though? If that's a good question, how do I know it doesn't belong? Here's our our, uh, framework. If what you brought or what you're trying to bring into the body of Christ will not exist in the future coming heaven, it does not belong. There's your framework. If what I'm trying to bring into the body of Christ will not last into heaven, then I should stop trying to bring it into the Canadian Church of Christ. Right? So that petty divisiveness we feel, and yet we kind of duck our heads and we go, man, I know I really probably shouldn't take this communion because I really have this thought of somebody behind me that I really don't like. Will that exist in heaven? Hope not. Probably going to have to work it out before you walk through the gates. (laughs) Right? You probably won't care in eternity. See, the church exists to be a preview of heaven, not a place of preservation for the kingdoms of the world. Let me say that again. The church exists to be a preview of heaven, not a place of preservation of the kingdoms of this world. So the church is an outpost of unity in a world of division and Man, you may say, well, that's tough, Jake, but oh my goodness, what an opportunity we have in a world that's continually more and more divided. The church can now stand up and go, look at this. We can not, we don't have to agree on all this other stuff, but guess what? We were all baptized into one spirit and we get together at this table every week. How beautiful is that? Second, here's what we learn is that the body of Christ is a family of encouragement in a world of despair. I want you all to hear this again. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. That's discouragement. That's despair. You're not needed here. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker, this is what's crazy about what Paul's saying, those parts are indispensable. The people who show up and nobody even knows they're doing something for the Lord, that is indispensable. The people who pick up little beasts as a trash, 
the people that do little things around town to encourage that one little text, those things that nobody knows about, and you think, well, those people aren't even involved here. They don't have anything going on in the church. Christ says that, Paul says that is indispensable type work. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. And listen to this, though, but God did, or God has put the body together, giving great honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, so, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So, in short, you know what Paul's saying? You guys will like this. What he's saying about the body is don't skip leg day. <laughs> Now, this is probably, I don't know, Coach Cav, this isn't in one of your guys, I know. But uh, this is probably shopped a little bit. This poor guy is jacked. And then you go down his body there, and he's got, you know, he's got, he's got the legs of a 10-year-old Jake Perkins, you know. So, or a 40-year-old Jake Perkins, I don't know. But uh, don't skip leg day. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying church ought to be the most encouraging place on earth. Not for those people who do the most or who aren't even doing the most but are the most seen, but for all people. The church should have equal concern for each other. So we don't skip leg day. See, we don't focus on one body part alone and just get our upper body jacked up. We don't say, I'm a foot and all I, all I need is other feet, right? Get out of here, elbows, right? right? Instead, we reverse that all thinking. And we go, you know what? Because we're a body, the parts that I don't pay attention to, probably I ought to go talk to. It's probably one of the greatest things I think we can do every Sunday. Man, what a, imagine a church that when it gathers, and we're much bigger than the gathering, but imagine that when we gather, everybody has it on their heart to speak to people they usually don't speak to instead of gathering up with the people they're comfortable with. Think about how encouraging that would be not to skip leg day. Lori Rutledge told me this, sto- this story a few years ago, pre-COVID. It was a fascinating story. I can't, I'll, it'll come up in my mind every once, uh, and I don't even know where she got it from, but she heard of this church that was having this incredible growth in their town. They had recently started to start caring for single moms in their town. They had noticed that their city was having a lot of problems centering around and struggling with moms that were trying to make it and parent on their own. And so they tried to focus on that and they started to work with some apartment complexes and and redo those apartment complexes and they started to focus on helping with diapers and and baby showers and all these things and the church started to explode with the number of young kids and single moms at their church and that brought up a problem it was a good problem but it was a problem nonetheless not everybody thought it was good Now, the problem was that a once peaceful service now was full of young babies, and they were noisy. Kids and babies were everywhere. But this church, Lori told me, knew how to address this opportunity not as a problem. So the church raised a little bit of money, and instead of moving the single moms out with their kids and saying, y'all go out where you can be noisy, they put a play area in their auditorium that was fenced off with rocking chairs for the moms right up front. 
You say, you talk about a message to the lesser known parts of the body of Christ. What did that say? You matter here. That's beautiful to me. You may say, I don't know about that. For me, that gives me excitement and inspiration for what the church can be. The less honorable parts we treat with special honor. The body doesn't skip leg day. Everybody matters. You matter here. Children, you matter. Right? I know you don't listen to me. I don't care. You're here. If you catch three minutes of somebody saying we love you, kids, and we want you to grow in faith, or you show up for a Bible class and somebody spends that 45 minutes and they get through to you for five minutes, that is worth it. Right? It matters. Teens, y'all matter. You're not the future of the church. Whoever came up with that saying, shut up. You're the church now. You matter. And we don't skip teen day. We are going to work with y'all. Y'all lead us. You guys do so much. Keep it up. And third, here's what we need to know. Not only are we a place of unity in a world of division, in a place of encouragement where every part matters, in a world of despair. And this one's a tough one. Paul says this, and you should have already picked up on it by hearing the passage twice, as the body of Christ chooses a challenge over comfort. Because all this stuff he's saying is not easy. If Americans share one thing in common, if humans could embrace one desire across all cultures, it would probably be our desire for comfort. (laughs) We are, after all, the inventors of the lazy boy, the convenience store, and the abomination known as the Snuggie. Right? We love our comfort. And often we've let comfort come into the church. And some of that is good. We want to create a space where people feel safe and comfortable, yes. But sometimes we have to ask ourselves, is all that comfort good, right? Put an amoeba in a Petri dish without any outside influences or stimuli that make it grow, the amoeba will die. Put a generation of fleas in a jar, I'm told, and close the jar tight. The first generation will jump up and keep hitting their little flea heads on the jar lid, trying to get out. But once the second generation of fleas is born, you can take the lid off and they won't jump out because they believe they can't because they've been trapped in a safe and comfortable environment. Is not the same dynamic at play and is not the same dynamic interrupting the mission and the vision of the body of Christ. Because for decades, what we've pulled towards is inward towards comfort instead of outwards towards transforming through discomfort. We know this growth is always on the other side of that imaginary comfort zone. I'm not a good mime, right? You know that. Everybody in here, if we stood up and said, this is when I'd grow, this is when I grew the most, it would be on the other side of some comfort zone you had, right? And so the church is a place where we choose to go, you know what, that might be hard, but I'm going to do it. Or that might be difficult, we're going to jump out in this. I love that this is happening. 
among our teens right now. I've got to tell you all about our junior high, middle school teens here in Canadian this past week. They decided that they would start a prayer group at lunch. And at 1210 uh, last, I don't know if I got my dates right, I think, I think Monday or Tuesday, they met for the first time. I think it was Monday. And they prayed together. Our young ladies, I think, are the ones really leading it and getting out there and saying, show up for this. About 10 kids showed up. The next day, they couldn't find each other, but they met a couple more times this week, and they're getting together, and they're praying. It's a simple act, but it's a simple act of 10 to 12 kids that I asked Coleman about it on Thursday, and he said, some kids that don't even go to church with us showed up. I said, huh, how about that? When Christ is displayed at the edge of our comfort zone, what is Christ seen as? Very attractive, right? And our kids are leading us in that. We need to follow that example as adults and say, where do I need to push against the places I have got comfortable? Who wants this this morning? Who wants to be a beautiful, I mean, this is a good church. It really is. And oftentimes it's a great church. But we've got some growing to do, amen? All of us. So who wants this? I do. Thank you. Amen. I do too. Amen. I want it so bad, and I wish I could give you a magic bullet. I wish I could give you the silver bullet to kill, kill the wolverine in your life and say, all right, I got it all figured out. I wish I could do that. And I was thinking about that. How do we wrap this thing up today? And I thought, well, Paul already told us. If we want this, it's already here. I want to give it to you. It's just word, it's the words of Paul. I'm not even going to tell you where it is because you already know where it's at. It's a passage we read a lot in the wrong context. It's a passage that we often read at, at special occasions and we forget that it's actually not a passage for those occasions. It's a passage for the church. Because Paul tells us, you want to be unified? Let me show you what he calls the most excellent of ways. If I speak in the tongues of men or in the tongues of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I have Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I have gained nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, 
always perseveres. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13 is not separate from what he just said in 1 Corinthians 12. He tells them, here's the beautiful vision for the body, and then he tells us exactly how to live it out. We get rid of envy and strife. We stop keeping records of wrong among the body of Christ. We stop that ledger that we all have on each other. We always start to trust the love that comes from God that's working on me is working on you and vice versa. We persevere through difficult times. And then we know that the love of God never fails. It's not a magic bullet, but it is something that will get you out of your comfort zone. Amen? So the next time we go, man, I'm really struggling with church. I don't like it. Okay? Welcome to the club. Next time I'm feeling that way, what I need to open up is 1 Corinthians 13 and ask myself, am I living this out? Because I am part of the body, just as you are part of the body, and my part in the body is no different than yours. I just get to talk about it in front of you. And may we be that kind of body. Such hope, guys. This is a great church. I love this church family. May we be who God has called us to be. If you need something today, we're here for you. This is a loving church family. Our elders are out in the back. If you guys want to go talk to them and pray with them about anything on your heart, let's stand together as Barry leads us and sing.